Not many people can say they've worked with the CIA to help tackle turnover. In this episode, we're talking with Dick Finnegan, an expert in the areas of employee engagement and retention. He's worked with companies across the globe seeking to understand what makes employees tick and perhaps, most importantly, what causes good employees to stay. Dick is going to shed some light on the importance of trust and accountability, and we're going to hear his opinions on how to improve staff satisfaction and pick up on the early warning signs of an employee who's checked out. He's also going to challenge us to think differently about traditional employee satisfaction surveys and why it's dangerous to compare yourself to mediocrity. Welcome to Second Opinions, a HealthStream podcast. I'm your host, Brad Weeks. Join me as I talk to some of the preeminent thought leaders and experts working in healthcare today. In these candid interviews, we're going to hear some alternative views. We're definitely going to challenge conventional wisdom, and we're going to get a little personal. But we are looking for second opinions. Join us. We're catching up with Dick over the phone while he's traveling. Dick, you've written numerous books about employee satisfaction and stay interviews, and your company, C-Suite Analytics, is dedicated to helping companies reduce turnover and improve employee engagement. Let's start with why healthcare executives should care about employee engagement. If all CFOs studied engagement in CFO school, all companies would be run better. And there's profound data that says, while it would be nice if all employees liked working more, the fact that if they're engaged, the organization is much more productive. And productivity leads to profitability. You know, the more you get engaged, the more productivity you get. But here's the study that always jumps out at me. It's a really simple one we can all relate to. Northwestern University found that when salespeople in any kind of sales give just 10% more effort, they increase sales by 23%. That's a big jump. So tell us what's wrong with the ways that healthcare organizations manage employee engagement today. The way we solve engagement today, solve engagement in quotes, is like solving disease with, with leeches. I mean, if you go back 100 years when everything was black and white, the methodology is survey, study results, find out what's wrong, go to HR and go to managers and say do action plans and develop a program to fix this. And the programs become new activities, new what I'll call programs for giveaways. So, for example, employees want more recognition. Easy. Employee of the month, employee of the week, employee appreciation week. Employees want more communications. Easy. Town hall meetings, newsletters. Employees want career development. Not so easy, bring in a guest speaker for a brown bag luncheon series from the community college. When's the last time you heard a good worker say, my boss treats me like dirt, but I'm holding on for employee appreciation week. I'll get a balloon and a hot dog and I'll be over the top. The bottom line is it's wonderful to have town hall meetings and newsletters and employee of the month. But when employees are deciding whether to push harder or whether to stay or leave, that's not what turns them on. Now, Dick, you've told us uh, the danger of benchmarks and how those can be dangerous and sometimes misleading. However, most human resources executives and, and leadership will look immediately for this metric to see how they're performing, how we compare to our, to our peer group. 
How can that be problematic from a human resources perspective? Think of it this way, Brad, that when you compare yourself to a benchmark, especially with engagement, the benchmark you compare yourself to is the average score for other organizations. Let's say the benchmark is 62 and you score 63. You're high-fiving each other when you're just one hair better than mediocre. And we would never be satisfied with being one hair better than mediocre for quality of service, quality of care, or any other critical healthcare benchmark. So the difficulty with it is not only that we are comparing ourselves to mediocrity, but we're comparing ourselves to organizations that for the most part really aren't schooled on how to improve engagement. So if we're fine with being in the middle of the pack, then the benchmark works. The better benchmark is to compare yourself to yourself and set a goal. Now, when I say set a goal, most organizations say, sure, we have a goal. What's the goal? Well, beat the benchmark or beat last time. No, that's not a goal. Your organization has goals for important metrics. You need goals for this metric. So I'm a CEO, and given our discussion about benchmarks and what we know about those now, tell us how can we know that we're truly improving? Yeah, two ways. Look at your overall score and look at score by leader. Now, when you look at scores by leader, the challenge all the time is how far down in the organization do we go to give a leader his or her own score? And the further you go down, the better. There's some number, and companies usually use approximately five, and say if you don't have five direct reports, then you can't have your own score because confidentiality is too risky. So there's some magic number there, so let's say it's five. But the further you go down, the more meaningful your data is because how engaged an employee is is mostly based on his or her relationship with his or her direct supervisor. So theoretically, if you have engagement data for the organization, but you have it all the way down to first-line leaders, you can tell where your problems are. When you review literature on engagements and retention, organizational performance, one of the central themes that I've seen um, discussed in that context is this notion of a culture of accountability and how important accountability is towards really any measure of performance. How does that relate to engagement? What is the role of accountability and, and specifically who should be accountable for employee engagement? I'm going to switch over to the retention side to tell you a story about nurse turnover that a hospital company with several hospitals had high nurse turnover. All but one of the hospitals said, we've done focus groups, we've done surveys, we know the answers. The answers are on-site child care and flexible scheduling. So we're going to invest the time, energy, and money to implement on-site child care and flexible scheduling. This will cut turnover. The outlier hospital said, no, we've done enough programs. We're just going to have a report every month of nurse managers, a turnover goal, and their performance against the goal. So you go out a year later, and the group of most hospitals that did on-site child care and flexible scheduling saw no change whatsoever. The accountability group saw nurse turnover go down 41% saving millions of dollars. So accountability is the answer at the first-line leader level. 
So with all the all of our listeners, all the people in our audience, chances are the majority of them have read at least one book on recognition or how to say thank you, uh, either in a professional or personal context. There's there's books on one thousand ways to say thank you. Some would say the most important skill to improve engagement. What say you on that topic? I would tell you it's a good one, but it's not the most important one. And the absolute most important one is to build trust. So think of it this way. I bet everyone listening, Brad, and you, 20 bucks, that if you think about the best boss you ever had and the worst boss you ever had, you would say you trusted the best boss and you distrusted the worst boss. Then I throw another 20 bucks on the table, and I don't really bet, but I throw another 20 bucks on the table, and I would say, I'll bet you your best boss had shortcomings. They couldn't speak in front of groups. They couldn't spell. They couldn't show up on time. They had shortcomings. But you didn't care because they had crossed over the barbed wire fence to where you trusted them, and now they were in such a hallowed space that it was so easy to forgive them for shortcomings, they were almost cute when they screwed something up. <laughs> but your worst boss had crossed the other way, and your worst boss had strengths. Your worst boss had things he or she could do well, but you were blindfolded to those strengths because once you cross the causeway to breaking trust, you are a jerk boss. That's what a jerk boss is, is someone who breaks trust. And once you're a jerk boss, it's very hard to go back. You know, here's another way to think about it. I'm a therapist by training, and I can tell you that human relationships spin primarily on two variables, trust and self-esteem. You stick with people who are looking out for you, and you stick with people who make you feel good about being you. So think about the best relationships in your life. It's always those two criteria. And when one or two of those break, bad things happen. Tell us in your experience, what's the role of the healthcare executive to improving or, or shaking up employee engagement? First of all, if we acknowledge, which is true, that engagement happens at the bottom of organizations, not the top, then the best thing these CEOs can do is put the right managers and supervisors in the right chairs. When I see at the bottom, I don't mean the lowest level. I mean one step down from every manager. So those CEOs can really only engage their direct reports. So they have to make sure all the chairs are right. The second thing is to hold the people in those chairs accountable so the more of those managers and supervisors who have their own score, the better, because there's got to be a true engagement goal, and they need to learn how to meet it. Uh, you spent a good part of your career discussing just how powerful and, and how effective state interviews can be for a leader. And this is probably a relatively new topic to a lot of our listeners. So just first tell us how you became involved in this topic and this concept of state interviews and what makes you so passionate about it. Several years ago, I heard about this idea. I read a couple short articles about it. It really was not a staple in the way organizations operated. But what became clear was that if managers asked employees how we could make work better, we then surpassed the shortcomings of surveys. But one of the shortcomings of surveys is 
They treat all employees the same. Everybody has the same weight in the results, even though top performers outperform others by four to one. So in a stay interview, you meet not just with top performers, but with everyone. And you ask five questions. And from, from those questions come a list of things that employees want. And we can't always give them everything they want. But the amazing thing, Brad, is how often we can help them. And the number one thing they ask for, which is always a surprise, is better work processes. Can you stop having me do this report nobody reads? Can you repair this piece of equipment? Or can you help this department or this colleague get their work done right and on time because they hold me back? That's the biggest thing employees ask for. There's a fear that they'll all want an increase, they'll all want a promotion. Nope, they want better work processes. Are there specific questions that a leader should ask? The first one is, what things do you look forward to each day when you commute to work? And the purpose for that question is twofold. One is to be positive, and second, of course, to get into the here and now. The question isn't when you come to work, what do you think about your pay? It's what things you look forward to each day when you commute to work. When we train managers, we always say, Somebody's going to say, I look forward to lunch and going home. And you should say, I have days like that, too. But really, what things do you look forward to? So number one is, when you commute to work each day, what things do you look forward to? Number two is, what are you learning here and what do you want to learn? Some employees want to learn a lot. A lot. Some just want to go home. So it's not that we have to have a development plan for everybody, but we want to know. And so much of what people want to learn, they can learn by being assigned a mentor on a schedule to learn it. Number three is what I always call the money question, which is, why do you stay here? Now, this is the question that causes pauses, no eye contact, duh, I never thought about it. And the most common first answer is, well, I got to pay the bills, to which we train managers to say, well, you know, I have to pay the bills, too. But I've thought about why I stay here. Tell me why you stay here. I really want to know. You could go somewhere else. I am grateful that you don't. You keep coming back here. What's really important about working here? Now, Brad, think of it like this. As a therapist, trained as a therapist, I know that therapists ask questions, get answers, repeat the answers, ask another question, get answers, repeat the answers. The breakthrough in therapy is when a client says something and then says, I can't believe I said that. The therapist says, say it again. I want you to hear that you said it. So in this case, it's, so let me tell you what I heard you say. This is really important. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but it's really important to me. Make a note of it, because think about how to take question one, what things do you look forward to, question three, why do you stay here, and those responses, and meld them into being a bigger part of the job, and everybody wins. Question four is, when's the last time you thought about leaving? What prompted it? I really want to know on a one to 10 scale, how important is this thing to you? What's the single biggest thing I could do to fix it? And question five is, what can I do as your manager to make work better for you? Probe. Do I do this too much? Do I do it too little? Am I too close? Am I too far? Do I tell you when you do something well? Whatever it is, don't be defensive. Find out what you can do better. Then, either on the spot or a few days later, come back and say, got some ideas for you. I think I see some ways we could make work working here better for you. Then you win.
because I think we can all attest to uh, the pace of healthcare now is probably faster and more complex than ever. And so given all these complexities, given the span of control that many leaders have, and just given the amount of time it takes to conduct a stay interview effectively, what would you say to those who are having trouble grasping how they're able to make time for this effort? If the only reason you do engagement is to have a score or because other organizations do it or your headquarters tells you you have to do it, then if that's the best you got, don't do standards. But if you dig into and learn the correlations between engagement and productivity, which are very real, then you say to yourself, how important is it to raise our scores? So if you think it's important to raise your scores, this becomes a critical step. Having said that, Brad, stay interviews will not sustain if they stand alone. If the idea is, here's this thing called stay interviews, go do them or go do them if you want. Yes, people will not take the time to do them. They might do them once. But the critical thing is to make engagement a business issue. So if the CFO takes the time to convert scores into dollars, which we can help them to do, then there are goals. We have a real goal, and we expect every manager to make the goal on the engagement survey. Third, we do stay interviews. Fourth, we ask each manager after the stay interviews to forecast how that employee will score on the next survey. Don't forecast what your own score will be, But each person on your team, if you have seven people on your team, then here's the way our survey categorizes responses. Forecast which ones will score in the top box and how you will get them there. Then be accountable. We have to get managers thinking about how to engage Susan and William and Robert and Jamal instead of how do I engage my team because everybody's different. Where do you see stay interviews fitting into this cadence that most organizations follow around engagement? We say to our clients, do do two stay interviews with new hires during the retention tipping point. The tipping point means if we keep them this long, they tend to stay. You have the manager do two within that zone. Then do a stay interview with each employee at least once a year, and many of our client companies say we'll do it every six months. Think about how most companies do engagement surveys once a year. A good chunk do them every two years. Very few do them more frequently than once a year. The way I think of it is this. If a manager got a really bad score on engagement and you said to the manager, do better next time, you have a year, how hard are they going to focus for a whole year? And if you had a division of your, let's say, a hospital that showed on a survey they have terrible patient service, would you go to that manager and say, well, you're doing a terrible job. You have a year to get better. You know, when you say to employees of a department, your department got a low score. We're going to give your manager a year or two to get better. You're telling them they got the short stick, right? You're telling them, you know, a lot of our managers do better than yours but you're stuck here and we're going to give this person a long time. I would get very creative. I would say to that manager, we're going to do a special survey for you and we're going to do it in 90 days. We're going to do it again in 90 days. 
if it's a big survey, we're going to take five questions. We're going to figure out a way because you got to show you improve fast. you got to get better at this. And if they do stay interviews and follow through, they will. Dick, you've said that the most important skill to improve engagement is trust, building trust between leader and employee. How can a stay interview, if done effectively, actually improve trust with another employee? That when we train managers to do stay interviews, we teach them to ask five questions, make eye contact, take notes, probe and probe and probe. Tell me more. Give me an example. Help me understand that better. Which employees do you like to work with? And by taking notes, you show you're listening. We teach them to say the phrase that my family imitates me to say that I've been saying since grad school. Let me tell you what I heard you say to see if I got it right. Here's what you said. Do I have this correct? Show interest through listening, through note-taking. Then come back and say, given everything that you said to me, I've got a couple ideas. And these ideas might come up spontaneously, or it could be, can we meet again in three days or five days at this time? And then some managers will go upstream to their manager and say, I need help. Or some might go to HR and say, hey, I've got some ideas. Do you think this can work? Dick, how about managers who have too many direct reports? Uh, Your research, uh, as, as has ours, has really shown that Many leaders in healthcare today have a large number of direct reports, sometimes as many as 60 or 70. Let's use nurses as our example. On average, nurses have 69 direct reports. There's another study that says the biggest variable in nurse retention is how many direct reports your managers have. So this is a big deal. And I know when I visit someone in the hospital, which is usually in the evening, of course, I always chit-chat with the nurses, because I want to know about retention. And one of the questions I ask you is, when's the last time you sat down and talked with your manager? The answer is always the same. The last time I did something wrong. So we know this is an issue. So what we say to our hospital clients about nurse turnover is do one of two things. Either take these charged nurses and make them supervisors. Now, they might not have the skills, so you might have to open up recruitment internally or externally to find the right people, you might have to bump their pay up $3,000 a year. Who cares? Because nurse turnover costs between thirty dollars and $70,000 a hit. So give these people some supervisory responsibility and give them retention goals. There's no way you can do this well with 60, but let's prioritize. The first group I would aim for is new hires. Get them started right. The next group I would aim for are top performers who you're concerned about leaving. The third group I would go for is top performers who you're not. Then I would do everybody else. It takes you more than half a year. It's still better than what you're doing now, which is nothing like the effectiveness of a standard view. That's interesting because I think if you ask managers in healthcare or, or other industries as well, they'll probably tell you that they spend a greater proportion of their time with underperforming employees rather than top performers. Yeah, you know, you have to address the poor performers because you just have to. And it's so easy then to take for granted the top performers. But this isn't about performance discussions. This is about who do I want to more engage and who do I want to keep? So it's by far your top person. How would you handle that conversation with an employee 
who says, look, I've got too much work to do. I can't get it done. How would you handle that conversation if you're that manager? I think you hit the hot one. The hot one is not enough staff. It's not not enough pay. It's not it's not enough staff. So not enough staff leads to a probe of give me an example of work that you don't get done. Give me an example of hours that people are working and dig and dig and dig to try to find better processes. Sometimes it's finding better people. Digging and probing for solutions really can make a difference. And there are micro solutions in there. Oftentimes it can make a big difference. But you know, Brad, sometimes there just aren't enough staff. And if engagement scores are affected, if turnover is affected, sometimes you do need to go make a case that if we move this person over here, if we take this role out of my department, if we hire one or two more people, we can be more productive. So sometimes these things can be solved without a plan about staffing, but sometimes they need staffing too. How can I forecast how long my team or my employees will stay with our organization? We always call this the lockdown tool. Remember, I gave an example earlier of a hospital that cut turnover by 41% by saying to nurse managers, you have a goal, we'll give you a report every month with your name on it on your performance against goal. So goals are a big deal. So costing turnover will get executives to connect the dots and give goals. Goals, stay interviews, forecasts, accountability. Forecasting works like this. I've done a stay interview with this employee. I know this employee, given everything I know, I'm going to pick one color. Think of a stoplight. Red means I think she'll be gone in six months. Yellow means I think she'll be gone in six to 12 months. Green means I think she'll be here in a year. We never think we can see out further than a year. So based on everything I know, that's my forecast. So if you have yellows and reds and you want to keep people, you better have a good plan or go upstream for help and go to your manager and say, you're holding me accountable for turnover. I've got this person as red. I want to keep him or her. Here's the issues. Here's my plan. Can you do better? Or I need your help for something out of my control. If you can't do better and she quits, don't come to me. I've done the best I can do. It's a fair position to take. On the other hand, if somebody's red or yellow and they're not performing well, manage them out unless they can get better. So we're not aiming to make everyone green. There's a trap here, Brad, and here's the trap. If people trust you, they will be much more open with you about what they like, what they don't, and how it impacts their length of stay. If they don't trust you, they'll go into a stand view and say, you know, we really don't have to meet. You're cool. I'm happy. And they can't wait to get out of the room. So having all greens is not the magic. The magic is that your actual turnover resembles your forecast. We all know sometimes people will quit for things we can't control. Their mom has cancer in Houston. They're going to relocate. Nothing we can do. But for the most part, we can do something. So the managers who build trust will have the closest relationship between their forecast and their actual turnover. To take it one step further, a better exit interview than the ones we're all accustomed to doing, which really don't bring a whole lot of value, is for the manager to go to the supervisor and say, Judith quit. You had her green. Tell me what happened. Tell me what you didn't know. Tell me 
what you should be asking in stay interviews that maybe you're not. Tell me, is there something you think that you impacted that you need to change about yourself? That's a better exit interview. It's interesting. You mentioned exit interviews. From what you've seen, Dick, what's your opinion on their effectiveness as in terms of how they're used today? Well, the thing that makes them least effective is there's no follow-up. There are reports once a month or once a quarter that get circulated in healthcare companies, but there's no list of here's what we will do and here's who will do it and here's when they'll do it. So there's just data that floats around. The second problem is we categorize reasons for leaving. And interestingly, if you go online and you query and you find the most common reason employees leave because of exit interviews, the number one reason is better opportunity. Now, that tells you nothing. (laughs) That tells us, what does that mean? Closer to home, pay, career development, get away from a jerk boss. It tells us nothing, but we love that term, better opportunity. Or we say they're leaving because they're no-call, no-show. They're leaving because of absences. These are not actionable results. Of course, the third reason that gets in our way is people don't tell the truth. There's now a book that says the best thing you can do in a stay interview is say, I just got, you know, I just have a better opportunity. I loved working here because you never know when you might want to come back or the company you're leaving acquires the company you're going to. What's the most important thing a leader in healthcare needs to focus on today? Well, I'm certainly biased, but have the right people and keep them. And especially in healthcare, because we have all this data that tells us we don't have enough healthcare workers. The age of nurses keeps advancing every year into the upper 40s or lower 50s. Keep and engage the good ones challenge or if you have to move out the not good ones but keep raising the water level so all the boats get higher because we've got to have the right people we can't win if we don't thank you for listening you can learn more about what we've talked about today by visiting our website at healthstream.com podcast for more second opinions follow us on facebook and twitter or subscribe on our website